0: Greetings, dear listener. This is another exciting episode of the Remnant podcast, and this is a very special episode for a bunch of reasons. I've wanted to get... David was one of my first guests on this podcast, but we did it by remote, by Skype, which I don't like to do. And now we have
1: him in the room. We have David French, my colleague at National Review. Hi, David. Jonah, thanks for having me. And I, as I recall, I think I compared the Grimes gang to SEAL Team 6 in that... uh I think you did.
0: It, it, <laughs> we'll explain all that in a little bit. You're in from Tennessee, and I, and I, I warned you I was going to bring up a bit of a surprise. Right before I came in here, uh, some friends of mine who all went to Vanderbilt okay. texted me this story, and I was trying to figure out what the story was about because they were all talking about, man, I didn't know this was illegal back then. But the AP is moving a story that says, Tennessee man accused of dipping testicles in customers' salsa before online delivery. (laughs) (laughs) Um, And apparently it's a felony. A felony. A felony. I thought this was America. (laughs) Um, And a Tennessee man was jailed on felony charges after appearing to dip – I won't say it again – into a (laughs) container of salsa that a customer had ordered online. The delivery driver allegedly recorded and posted a video – online saying, this is what you get when you give an 89-cent tip for an almost 30-minute drive. And now he may go to jail. So I agree with you. It seems to me this is America. And that, you well, know.
1: You, you know, Tennessee, if you if you know... Free speech guy, right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but, but the other thing is, if you know much about Tennessee, we've always had this, hey, wait, about what about us sort of feel. Like people yeah. say, you know, go to Texas, no state income tax. Well, what about us? We don't have a state income tax. Go to Florida, natural... Beauty to some extent, no state income tax. What about us? We have mountains and no. Yeah. And now I guess we're deciding to give Florida man a run for his money. I guess so. Um, Tennessee is actually, you know, speaking of weird states, you I mean you can't
0: hold a candle to Florida. No, no, no one can. But no. um, Tennessee is a weird state, right? Because it's 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 one of the only states where the political divides were east west rather than right. north south. Yeah, right? very much so. And you kind of had that sort of like Jayhawks weirdness. I mean, they weren't Jayhawks, but there was that weirdness, Civil War weirdness. Oh, yeah, And it kind of – those patterns still hold to today in some way, right?
1: Well, yeah. I mean, East Tennessee was Republican forever. Um, it didn't – it was not it, – it was dissenting from secession. It was a hotbed of unionist sentiment. And you know, for a long time, the dynamic was the East Tennessee – Districts were going to be Republican districts, but Middle and West Tennessee dominated overall, and so Tennessee was Democratic. Uh, So now everything sort of moved towards East Tennessee, although East Tennessee to this day is still a little bit more business establishment Republican in its mindset than some of the parts of Middle Tennessee and West Tennessee that are not any longer – I've always just sort of been interested in Tennessee, in part, because my wife lived there
0: for a little while. She wasn't my wife at the time, but she was working on Lamar Alexander, Lamar's, yes, campaign in two thousand, and uh, where she uh, shared an office with one
1: Steve Schmidt. Oh wow! Yeah, has some stories. From now him. that's a small world because my wife worked for Lamar really as well, not at that exact time. Uh-huh. But back when he was running something called, I believe, the Republican Satellite Exchange Network. So vaguely remember that. Yeah. 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 These, this, is, this, is, this is demonstrating our long, deep roots in the dreaded establishment. Right?
0: It's true. It's true. Um, and also, I have to say, this is one of the most artful and seamless segues from the topic of junk dipping in salsa <laughs> to the political geography of Tennessee that has ever been heard on any podcast.
1: Uh, it's probably the only time that that transition has ever been made in human history. There you go. So, <laughs>
0: All right. So. Uh, for listeners who are curious, we are going to talk about the grand new adventure that I've been teasing on this podcast about for a while, but we're going to wait till the end um, because this is still, for the time being, a national review podcast and I don't want to be using national review resources overly to promote my new exciting venture. If you don't know what I'm talking about, stay tuned to the end. So anyway, yesterday we had the Michael Cohen yep. hearings and uh, they they – I think it's fair to say that that if God was watching, there would be a smoldering crater <laughs> <laughs> where Washington was. What did you make of
1: it? Uh, you know, I I watched or listened to the whole thing start to finish. And, uh, you know, a couple of thoughts. Uh, one, uh, we didn't really learn that much. Mm-hmm. Um, there are a couple of things that got fleshed out in interesting ways that we can talk about um, but everything else just went according to. If you were going to script it out beforehand, the Republicans are going to try to trash his his credibility at every at every turn. But the instant he says something helpful, they're going to wrap their arms right. around it. Um, that happened. Uh, that the Democrats were going to sort of, you know, some of the smarter ones were at least saying, "Hey, look, you've lied before. We're gonna we're gonna treat what you say with skepticism." But you know, the rehabilitation of Michael Cohen is he's rediscovered his conscience and and now coming forward in sort of that classic John Dean sense. Mm-hmm. Uh, you saw all of that. I was much more – and, you know, look, I've been marinating in this Trump-Russia, Trump-Southern District of New York stuff so much that I almost feel like it's um, – I have knowledge of it like I used to have knowledge of one of my old cases back when I was litigating – so you're sitting there with this bank of knowledge about the underlying evidence, you know, what document says this and what document says that. And then you're comparing it with what Cohen says, which I think is the only really interesting part about it. Because if, right. it's, if it's just Cohen saying stuff that's totally unsupported by anything else, I mean, it might be true. It might right. not be true. Although there, there is credibility that – I mean, again, I am not a Michael Cohen fan. Yeah.
0: Right? He really kind of seems like a – minor character from like Taxi Driver or something like that. But um, the fact that he didn't support the collusion narrative, yes, right? He said things that would have made him more of a hero that would be completely unprovable one way or the other, but people would choose to believe him in the yeah. Rashomon way. The fact that he de- declined to go there on, on on being told to lie, which would have been an impeachable, gives him some credibility on the I agree with that. stuff,
1: right? I agree with that. I mean, I think the, you know, the fact that he refuted the Prague story... Which has always seemed really fishy to me because yeah. it's sort of part of this casting Trump as this Bond villain, which right. – um, refuting the tr- the the Prague story, he refuted or at least said he had no knowledge of some of the other really lurid um, Trump stories that are out there. I got into an Uber right when I landed in DC, so I had this like – Quick break between when I was listening to it on my headphones to when I get in the Uber and he's got it on in the yeah. you know radio and the first words I heard when I got in the Uber were love child <laughs> 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 so it's fantastic for the love child portion of the testimony but the fact that he you know refuted some of those things I think does build his credibility but as I, you know as I've written a million times uh, dealing with other bits of testimony like the, in the Kavanaugh hearing our ability to discern whether people are telling the truth by these kinds of me- mechanisms is really limited. Yeah. And so, you know, I I agree with you. I think that that did build some credibility, but I'm still I'm still in this sort of just general view of don't tell me, show me. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. no, like when he shows the receipts or a canceled yeah. check, then,
0: you know, it, yeah. You know. Um but we are i was just talking about this on um this this other podcast i do <laughs> um, and um, niche podcast no no you know that's no, a Glop is a <laughs> huge culture spanning podcast <laughs> uh, but i'm getting sort of weird flashbacks back to the clinton years oh all the time and back then you know first of all there was you know people forget move on you know voomoveon.org yep. started as it, that was a code word – that was a code phrase for saying, we know Clinton did this. He's apologized. Let's move on. Yep. And then it became it – it was a good label because it also fit into the progressive idea of the wheel of history moving forward Yeah, yeah, yeah. But now we're hearing a lot of Republicans move on. We know these things. Old news. Um, baked in. Baked in. Yep. Priced in. All these things. And the uh, – <clears throat> and there's the same sort of defining deviancy up, not down issue here in the sense that <laughs> – Anything that doesn't corroborate the collusion or a peachable offense stuff, the attitude is who cares, right? Right, and I get that to a certain extent, but there was a time, at like back on on Earth Three, where Mitch yeah. Daniels is president. If it came out that the president had paid off paid off his personal lawyer to bribe a porn star about an affair that he had while his wife was nursing their newborn baby at home.
1: Yeah. Be kind of a
0: big deal. (laughs) Um, And we don't – and that just – now everyone just eyes well, we knew that already, you know, and it's sort of – it's the boiled frog of moral outrage, right?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, there's – a so there's a couple of things going on that I think are really toxic in the underlying cultural – sort of in the underlying uh, cultural impact of all this. One is it's almost as if the bar is now – Unless the the legendary dossier is proven, right, and, and the dossier, and I wrote this when the dossier was first published, like I thought it was a journalistic malpractice for Buzzfeed to just launch that into the public square because it was totally unfounded, I meaning contained salacious rumors about you know an, other human beings, completely unfounded, completely unverified, and then now the world the word is unless it's dossier, right, it's not a big deal, right. And, and that's crazy. Yeah. <laughs> that's just nuts because, you know, what we've had is a, a record of Trump and Trump's larger team lying an awful lot about their conduct during the campaign and especially conduct oriented towards, um, you know, a hostile foreign power. And I'm not saying – and I have written this about as clearly as I know how – that I am not saying that there was some Vladimir Putin, Donald Trump conspiracy. What I have, what I think the evidence shows is that there was a collection of grifters and con men and frankly idiots who were in the larger Trump orbit who were grasping for whatever advantage mm-hmm. that they could get in this election. And they were played, you know, by some of these Russian assets and some of these Russian individuals. And I mean, like, what, what diabolical genius. Responds to uh, you know international agent of espionage responds to an email that says hey I've got you know Russian documents as part of an official Russian plan <laughs> you know to help elect your father and and responds if it's you know what you say it is I love it right you know right. this is not Bond villain stuff it's more like you know watching Doctor Evil's henchmen in the Austin Powers yeah, yeah. Uh, movies but that doesn't mean it isn't a problem and. And that's the thing that gets me is this notion that, well, I'm going to set an artificial barrier of, of – if, if it's not treason, who cares? Right. And, and we're just moving towards that. And let's – remember, goalposts have shifted because an awful lot of people doubled down on the Trump denials that there was any sort of improper contact with any sort of Russians. And it's just crazy deep state conspiracy theory thinking to believe that. And then, you know, things dribble out and you're like, oh, that's no big deal. Well, that's no big deal. Well, then that one is also no big deal. And, you know, I just, you know, goalposts.moving.gif. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's pronounced gif, by the way. Uh- <laughs> I, I, actually, I actually lost a bet with my son. We argued about this and we had a maddened face-off. Uh-huh um a Madden 2018 face off where I got to pick my team and he picked the worst team in the NFL and he beat me and so I'm now forever barred from saying GIF I have to say Is that Gif. right? Yep, I wow. lost a lost a bet and couldn't back up my words on uh All right, well that that's a that is a
0: perfectly defensible excuse for <laughs> pronouncing it wrong. Um but um no, it's sort of like the irony of of all of these Republicans saying over and over again this is a you're a corrupt sleazy deceitful liar you're the most horrible man in the world and yet this is this is the guy that Donald Trump picked as his personal counsel who made him the vice president of the Trump organization and put him on the on the RNC and these same people also say Trump is the best judge of character <laughs> he's a uh, he hires the best people right I mean right. it's like it just it, it, it's 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 not just that the goalposts move along a single track left to right. It's that they're more like dervishes. They're on like a gyroscope and they're moving all over the place simultaneously. Yeah. And you can't keep track of what the the narrative is. It's like the anti-Never Trump stuff. Are the Never Trumpers, uh, which is a label I don't use, um, right. but um, are they the most evil... Diabolical villains undermining Trump at every turn or are they effluvial dust and the going into the <laughs> trash can of history and they don't matter and they're irrelevant. Pick one, you know. Right. Right. <laughs> um, and you just get so, so when I, every time I've been listening to this, it's like the more you denigrate this guy as, as a buffoon and a liar, you're also undermining this claim that Donald Trump hires great people
1: and has a great judge of character, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> but the only north star is what is what do i need to do today to defend Trump right. that's right. just the north star and, you know and look one of the things it, the 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 overreactions of on the other side and media mistakes and sometimes what looks often like malicious media misconduct on occasion is common enough to where if you want to say my job is not, I'm not defending Trump, but my job is to. I'm going to find all of the things that the other side does poorly. You, you can do that constantly. Yeah. you can do that. Ab, you can do that constantly, and and there's so many things that you'll find that sometimes if you jump off that beat for a while and you say, okay, wait a minute, but but Trump, then you're immediately hit with why are you ignoring A B C D E right. F and G, and you know when the political culture is is in in my view just right now falling apart on multiple fronts it is an absolute target rich environment and one of our challenges i think is and this is something that is a big challenge for me as i'm you know thinking about what to write and talk about is putting things in proportion and perspective mm-hmm. what is the actual most important thing that occurred today right and and trying to figure that out and act accordingly yeah,
0: I mean, it's a it's a real challenge because I think my views on Donald Trump are fairly well known. Your views on Donald Trump are fairly well known. <laughs> I have never been more sympathetic to reelecting Donald Trump than I am now mm-hmm. because infanticide, Green New Deal, socialism, yeah. Medicare for all—it's the infectiousness of asininity and extremism that is going around everywhere. Everywhere, yes. And I feel like. I kind of did this in the last G-File. I had to, like, check the box of anticipating the criticism of the what about Trump part mm-hmm. before I can move on to criticize the left about anything. And this is one of my criticisms of of, of Bill Crystal, who is a friend of mine. And yeah. And I like Bill a lot. But he he just seems to have decided he's only going to concentrate his fire on Trump and ignore all the things that the left does. And I think that Bill is much more of a tactician, you know, yeah. operator than either of us are yeah. – But as a tactical matter, I think that's a mistake for Bill because if you're trying to bring along conservatives, you need to remind them every now and then that you're still a conservative and that these things bother you. Yeah. And when the Democratic Party at the rhetorical national level basically says they're in favor of infanticide (laughs) – you have to condemn that. You, know? yeah. Like, yeah. you just have to. Yeah. Even if it's good for Trump or whatever, you know, and you have to praise or at least acknowledge that Trump is condemning it, you know, whatever his motivations
1: make. Yeah, he's, Yeah, Trump's made the right call on this. But, you know, one of the things that and, – and this is something that uh, – you know, so I've been just, – just to sort of put my pro-life street cred out there, uh, I helped form the what I think is the first dedicated pro-life group that existed at Harvard Law School – uh, formed that with a couple of friends, have represented pro-life organizations during my – virtually my entire legal career, raised money for crisis pregnancy centers. I mean I've been out there making – and then you know trying to make this cultural argument. And one of the things that you realize if you've been deeply immersed in the pro-life movement is that politics is only a slice of it. Mm-hmm. Uh, we, we tend to think of the judiciary as the be-all, end-all of the battle. It's only a slice as well. I mean the real battle – is the battle on a day-to-day basis for hearts and minds. Mm-hmm. That's the real battle because Roe could be overturned tomorrow. And if the American people want abortion rights, they'll still have it right? because it will go to the states. It'll be part of the democratic process. And you've already seen in blue states how how deeply committed that, that political culture is to protecting abortion rights. So when I'm looking at the life issue, I look at the whole thing. And Yes, I am glad that Trump has come out against infanticide. That's a low bar. Yeah, no, exactly. Yeah. It's a low bar. And I'm glad for the judges he has appointed. But lest everyone just go nuts about that, I mean, uh, and, and and fall on the, on their faces in gratitude over this. I mean, look, the anti-infanticide bill still failed. Right. It still failed. And um, the first test of this new Trump-shaped Supreme Court, they allowed a – they stayed – a Louisiana admitting privileges law that was really a really modest, very modest restriction on abortion. Now, they may reverse themselves later on when the case is fully heard. But, you know, if you're sitting there looking at this political process and any one political leader to make all the difference, you know, I, I actually think net-net Trump with all of his horrific character flaws being a pro-life, standard bearer is a net negative mm-hmm. for the pro-life movement. I think that the the extremism of the Democrats, which has dominated the news, is a net positive for the pro-life mm-hmm. movement. Um, it has given us more opportunity to talk about this issue uh, from a practical and philosophical level that frames the issue, I believe, accurately than any recent event that i yeah. i can remember that's far more potent for life in a weird sort of way than Donald Trump speaking to the march for life yeah. which i'm glad a president is doing that but it's that's a a, a blip on the radar screen yeah. and it's funny
0: just like i mean it's a i'm actually a good bellwether of that point because i you know when i say i'm essentially pro life it it bothers a lot of passionate pro lifers mm-hmm. what do you mean by essentially and mm-hmm. what i mean by essentially is that i understand the ambivalence that people have about the idea that a blastocyst or a just fertilized egg uh, has the full suite of rights, even though intellectually I find that case often persuasive, Mm -hmm. emotionally I kind of get it. Mm -hmm. The morning after pill does not horrify me the way letting a fully delivered baby die does, right? And so I am perfectly happy to be Outraged and 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 full of what is it? You know, uh, Samuel L. Jackson says, you know, full of righteous anger. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, about late-term abortions and all of that kind of stuff, because that to me, it's not hard. Mm-hmm. It's not. It's 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 just it. You know, it doesn't require any leaps of faith or of of reason to understand that a baby is a baby. Yeah. You know and when the democrats go that way it becomes so much easier to have this conversation about abortion but i think the point i often make about the 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 culture thing is conservatives have a really hard time taking wins Mm -hmm. and if i've i've written this column now a few times just all that's really changed is what sitcom i'm using as the news peg (laughs) whenever it it started with like on friends but like Mm -hmm. Whenever on a sitcom, a character gets pregnant, right? You know, first of all, that the, writer, the writers aren't going ri- to get Rachel pregnant unless they plan on her having a baby, mm-hmm. right? And so this, there's always this – this not always, but like I think with, with Rachel and Friends it was – there's a momentary agony about whether or not to have the baby, right? You mm-hmm. know, and then, but then the second they decide they're going to have a baby – it's oh. like Schrodinger's cat. It becomes a baby, even though yes. it's only like one month in, in utero or whatever. Yeah. And they talk about it a baby. They, a couple years ago, Big Bang Theory, there was an episode where, um, uh, I can't remember her name, Wallowitz's wife gets pregnant, and, you know, she's in the first two weeks of pregnancy, mm-hmm. and they're like, we made a person. Yeah. And the, the way normal people, including very left-wing people, talk about pregnancy is it's about making people you know mm-hmm. and we don't recognize that we think all holly and, and and when when hollywood can't write around basic human truths yeah um when they they've been trying for years to make these movies to make abortion funny right and it never works never because it's just not funny no you know I and mean, i got you know, they're pro-choicers who make a perfectly valid case that sometimes it's necessary i get that i mean i mean i, I get it's valid on their terms but you can't turn it into something funny, you yeah. know, and that's a reflection of human nature that conservatives don't pick up on and don't celebrate and don't recognize enough. Well, because we're
1: always thinking we're always losing the culture war. right? Which in some areas we lose. In some areas we've done pretty remarkably well. Yeah. I mean, you know, one of the things that was pretty jolting to me when when my kids, my older two kids, started to get old enough to where I could show them movie, movies from my that I loved when I was a kid. Yeah. And I I was really shocked at how much more risqué the movies from the 80s were yeah, yeah. that were aimed at young kid younger kids than the contemporary TV landscape. So, oh. you know, if you look at Disney Channel, yeah, there's going to be some woke stuff in there, but overall that is a celebration of intact families. Right. Loving parents. Right. Um you're not going to see a lot of glamorization of like teenage rebellion, right. all of this. And so there have been some really positive cultural moves And the pro-life movement. I've said this um, many times before, given the odds stacked against it where all of the pillars of the academy, of Hollywood, of pop culture, of you know, elite opinion making, of really not respected pro-life Americans – The ability to not just sustain but by some measures grow the movement and also – and this is really, really important – shrink the number of abortions by hundreds of thousands even as the population of the U.S. grows. And now people will say, well, that's all contraception. No. I mean even Guttmacher says that people who have unwanted pregnancies are now more likely to bring them to term. Mm -hmm. Those are – really positive positive developments that have come about in in large part because all across the country the vanguard of the pro life movement are some of the kindest yeah most generous and self-sacrificial Americans you will meet yeah and and this is something about Trump and I've said this before it's just true that bad people can discredit or damage good causes mm-hmm. that's just the way the world works and to say well I, yeah, I totally agree with you David normally, but now we can totally treat this just transactionally. Right. I just think that's that's just not understanding how people's hearts and minds are influenced.
0: Yeah, no, uh, I have a left-wing journalist friend who was talking about the era of Trump and he says, you know, look, in, in the 1980s, as much as the left hated Ronald Reagan, it wasn't considered a racial epithet to use Reagan's last name. And that is the case in a lot of parts of the culture. Now. Yeah. And so there's, you know, Ben Sass, um who is uh, um, uh, a national champion and spokesperson for wheat uh yeah. <laughs> and also he does something in Washington, he um he talks about how in his his state uh used to be the most pro-free trade state in the Union. Yeah. And then simply because Trump comes along and the reason it was pro free trade was because they were voting their interests because mm-hmm. they were just sending soybeans and corn and you know whatever you know to China and elsewhere, and then Trump comes along and tells them that free trade is bad, and the numbers flip from thirty seventy to seventy thirty. Yeah, on on the issue, and you see the same thing. Around, Democrats now are more pro free trade than they've been in a generation, and it's and you have the same phenomenon with Obama. Yeah, you know, yeah. but Democrats is, are more interventionist too. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and it's it's. It's a long-term problem to have somebody as, as as the spokesman for your cause that is going to go down in history and in the culture as being remembered as a not a great person yeah and it's going to take a long time to disentangle a lot of that which gets me to a point I just wanted to get on mostly for gloating purposes uh, <laughs> gloat away uh, that I beat you to the punch in calling this podcast <laughs> the remnant because you did a great riff. I know this is shocking to a lot of people, but you can quote the Bible better than I can. And uh, uh, you did a great riff on the remnant on on the last cruise we were on together, mm-hmm. um, which was a National Review cruise. There's nothing weird going on here. Yeah. Um, I know he's a Tennessee man, but and so you know,
1: just give me your sense of what our job is. Yeah. So here's here's why I'm I'm so envious of the name because. The, 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 the word remnant has a lot of theological power. Yeah. And, and you've talked about this some um, as well. Uh, but, you know, if you look at it from the sort of the sweep of Judeo-Christian history, there have been multiple times in which the – there is a, a dramatic loss. So, you know, the kingdom of Israel suffered through bouts of apostasy to the point where, you know, the number of people who had not bowed their knee to Baal could be, you know, numbered in the few thousands, right. for example. Or Jesus' ministry. Is Baal the accepted pronunciation? That, I mean, it's an honest question. You know... I always say Baal, but... Good. I have no idea. Yeah. That's how... I grew up in a Southern evangelical church, and Fair I enough. I thought the pronunciation for years was Baal. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh So, I just say bail. so okay. like a bae. uh. And so you know, so then you have Jesus' ministry. He comes in, has a triumphal entry into Jerusalem, and, and days later is crucified between two common criminals with, what, less than half a dozen people right. at his feet? And the thing about the remnant I think that's really powerful in the, the biblical concept is it speaks both of loss and of hope. Right. Your remnant, your, your what remains of what was once a greater thing – but you're also the seeds of something, of a renewal. And to me, when I think remnant, I think of that model, which is just remain faithful to your calling. You know, remain faithful to what you were put here to do. And in our circumstance, it's you know one of the things I've liked about how you've described your job description. And forgive me if I butcher your quote, but I'm here to tell the truth. Right. As I see it, right, which it, means I mean, that could be wrong. Right, yeah. I mean, we're not omniscient. We, right. I'm wrong all the time, but I do my best to tell the truth and and remain faithful to that calling. And I don't look at it as being on a sinking ship. That's not what a remnant is. Right, a remnant is not a sinking ship. It's the lifeboat. It's the lifeboat. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it's it's the as I said, it's the seeds of renewal. And and you know, again, not to quote you to you, but <laughs> character is destiny. Right. Or to quote our good colleague, uh, Jim Garrity, that which can't go on forever won't. Right. There's going to be a need, a crying need for an alternative voice. And and I think one of the things that's going to be most important and ver- – well, not mo- – but very important in all of this is did you remain faith- – that question, did you remain faithful to your calling? And if you did, I think that rightfully um, – and and hopefully increases your credibility in the days and years to come. But, you know, look, we don't we, we write about the story. We don't write the story. <laughs> yeah, no, it's true. I mean,
0: uh, but you know, we're recording this on Thursday morning. I think it's the twenty seventh, twenty eighth. One of those things. And this morning, the head of the RNC at the at CPAC. said that the Republican Party needs more Charlie Kirks and Candace Owens because they're the future (laughs) of the Republican Party. Right. And there's this great story about Ronald Reagan where when he was governor of California, there were all these hippies protesting him because he was making budget cuts or something. He was on a college campus, and they're all screaming at him and shaking his car. And one of the hippies holds up a sign and says, We are the future. And Reagan reads it through the window and then takes out his big legal pad and his big felt tip pen and he writes something on his pad he holds it up to the window and it says, then I'm selling my bonds. <laughs> and if, if Charlie Cook and Candace Owens are the future of the Republican Party, then we need something other than the Republican Party yeah. as a vessel to make these points. And, you know, I've been sort of beating a dead horse on this point, but it's something I've been thinking about a lot. I used to, I was a lot angrier a couple years ago at mm-hmm. the beginning of all of this mm-hmm. than I am now. And part of it is the day drinking, but part of it <laughs> part of it is just um and I and I apologize to listeners who heard me do this before, but I used to think that everybody who had essentially our job description understood their job the same way. Right. And it turned out that I was just simply wrong about yeah. that. That I always knew that I mean I knew from 20 years, and th- almost 30 years in Washington that people who have, you know, uh, GOP strategist or GOP political consultant mm-hmm. or Democratic political consultant or Democratic mm-hmm. lie all the time because that's mm-hmm. their job. And I don't mean it in a pejorative sense. It's that they're salesmen for their client. Essentially.
1: Yeah. They're like lay
0: attorneys. Anyway. Right. Yeah. That's right. And they're supposed to make the best case possible uh, within the bounds of plausibility for their, mm-hmm. their clients, essentially. There are a lot of pundits who turned out, who thought the same way, and I think this is part of the problem of how the as the Demo, as the Republican and Democratic parties get weaker and weaker and weaker, the functions that parties have historically uh, performed has been outsourced to all sorts of other institutions, and and so it's weird. I've always been. I've always hated these sort of morally scolding <laughs> journalism one hundred and one. We're the brave truth tellers. Oh I hate all that stuff. Yeah. I think most journalism schools are basically, you know, they're like the they're like the Meisters in Game of Thrones. They are right. a, a guild protecting their own mm-hmm. prestige. But I just always thought you weren't supposed to lie, right. or, you, and you, or at least that's how I defined it. And there are other people. Who are just they're party guys at the end of the day, or yeah. whatever, or they're move, or they think they're movement guys, and therefore the whatever advances the ball politically for the for the Freedom Caucus is worth spinning that way. And I think so. In some ways, it's been a healthy thing, just in the sense that Trump has been unleashed He's, he's sort of like a die marker. Yeah, you, you kind of know who's who now. Yes, and that's good to know. And there are people who are pro Trump who are still honest and decent and serious people. And I'm not saying that it's you sell your soul the second you support, anything like that. But they're also willing to say critical things when they need to say Mm -hmm. critical things. It's the people who insist that any criticism is illegitimate or based on some base motives that you just know that they don't have the same job description that we do. Yeah, yeah.
1: Well, and, you know, also a lot of it is, I mean, you know, it's funny – it seems like any there there's a lot of um understanding about what human nature is but a lot of blindness when it comes to thinking that my people and my tribe are susceptible to the same forces that we can diagnose in others. Right, right. And you know, you see this all the time like academics will talk about the problems of groupthink. Right. And you're just thinking, you know, really physician heal thyself. Right, exactly. You know? Yeah. And I I think what we have is a Professions res- and people respond to incentives, and you—you know—one of the points you've made before about the invasion of the body snatchers—is yeah. when you're talking about a entity moves in a, a entity moves into the White House that controls access to not just literally thousands of jobs, right? And some of these jobs are real launching pads for future right. success for the re- career-altering, life-altering kinds of opportunities, and you also have a very robust conservative media and sort of economic uh you know ecosystem there that creates incentives and when that ecosystem latches on to one dude and and one party it is it is very powerful yeah. it is very powerful and and also when you add to that that some elements of that ecosystem hold grudges and and take names and so I have spoken, you know, it's amazing the number of people I will I will have someone come up to me and they will say something like this. David, I have something that you can write about and that the Trump administration is doing and I can provide you with all of the documents and everything, but I could never say this. Yeah. Or you know, things as, as simple as in some of the, the network and webs of relationships, I got a message some time ago that said, thank you for writing about person X. I could never do it. They coached my son's little league. <laughs> 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 you know, and some of that, you, know, you totally understand, got right. it. That, that's not an integrity issue. Right. You know, sometimes you just leave people be and let someone else Take take the.
0: There are people who write for National Review that I, yeah, they're colleagues, and so therefore I will find somebody else I can have the same argument with. Right, exactly,
1: exactly. But man, these things exist, and and you know one of the distortions, and I wrote I I wrote about this some time ago, is this incredible power of Fox to cement a conservative reputation and to provide a. Uh, a a not just a platform on that network, but but put you supercharge your platform. Yeah, and and people think of Fox as an ideological entity, and there are many great people on Fox. Yeah. You're on Fox. I mean, there are many great people on Fox. I'm not indicting everyone there, but it's a it's an economic entity that has primarily economic interests and it has identified those economic interests in a specific way that is not necessarily in a, a complete uh if the v- the Venn diagram between say uh ethical conservatism and and Fox's priorities is not identical.
0: <laughs> yeah. And and also I mean there are important distinctions to be made there and I say this as someone who's got good relationships and bad relationships at Fox um I will still defend the Fox News side of things. You know, Brett news, yes, tries very, very hard to do the right thing to cover the stories that the opinion side doesn't want covered because if he thinks they're news and
1: I agree with you a hundred percent on that. Yeah.
0: But on the opinion side, um, it's a, just a different story. And I don't, yeah. you know, as we were saying just a minute ago, there, I have relationships with a lot of those people, but, and there are, there are rules of talks about not pissing inside the tent as it were. But I can't defend the stuff that goes on in a lot of the opinion side, and I won't. But I think that the one of the things that Fox that people don't appreciate is that because – and this is somewhat related to the new venture stuff I'm doing, so I've been thinking about it a lot. Because Fox has that space all alone, yeah. you can see these th- these dynamics that you're talking about more clearly, right? Mm-hmm. There's a demographic that has already been through the big sort – that is all on board with with the Fox perspective, and Fox is is has got that demographic as a captive market essentially. On the left side of the ledger, you have all of the same problems of fan service yeah. and 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 the search for the sticky two percent of the market rather than the broad not yeah. sticky middle of the market. But because there's competition there, <laughs> yeah. it's – you sometimes miss it, you know. Um, but that's the problem across the media is that there are very few institutions left that tell the average viewer what they need to hear rather than what they want to
1: hear. Yes. Yeah. Well, you know, and I also think – I mean I I think, you know, one of the benefits of living in Tennessee is – The salsa is salsa's great. Oh yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. That Tennessee salsa. <laughs> Not as good as Tennessee sushi. Uh Uh, But the – so one of the benefits of living there is – and being well outside the beltway is you sort of see how conservative media plays and how it's absorbed and impacted in sort of the hierarchy of conservative media in people's minds. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And what has never failed to amaze me is the power of Fox as an independent validator of that you're someone. So – um, you know, Rush, I mean, he has guest hosts, but he doesn't, like, share his platform. Mm-hmm. Mark Levin doesn't share his platform. Hannity is more on radio, has more guests, say. Mm-hmm. But as a general rule, you know, Fox has this has 24 hours of programming to fill, and who it chooses to put up there is this immense validator. And mm-hmm. so, I, you know, I, I tell this story of the first time I was on Fox was 2006, and it was a sp- segment on O'Reilly, and let me just tell you, Jonah, it was a disaster. <laughs> I was so terrible on that. And then the thing that really made it worse, this is the beginning of the HD era. You know, I I was having – I think it might have been the first time ever I had this uh, TV makeup put on. Uh-huh. And the the makeup artist put something on my lips. Oh, I no. Like, I was like, what? whoa, 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 wait a minute. What are, you, what are you doing? Oh, no. You know, trust me. And I said, well, does it look like I've got lipstick on? And she said, no, this is dealing with shine. You know, uh-huh. it's fine. And so – I go on. I'm nervous anyway. O'Reilly is unimpressed with what I have to say. And then I get off and I'm just feeling bad about it. And the first thing that happens is my phone rings and it's my one of my best friends from college. And the first words out of his mouth were, you are wearing lipstick on national television. (laughs) But so I thought, what an absolute disaster that was. My, you know, I just did damage to my career. But what I found was, if you put this on your bio line mm-hmm. appeared on O'Reilly. Yeah. You know, no matter what else is on there. Oh. Right. Oh, wow. Yeah. We want to hear from you. Yeah. And I was really frankly stunned by that. And you know, that's not been entirely good for us. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. <laughs> I mean but
0: a lot of problems a lot of problems with the right hat, I mean, this gets to this problem with the flight ninety three ism stuff. Mm-hmm. A lot of the problems the right has are problems of success, not of, of failure. Yeah, right? yeah. And if you had told people forty years ago that the number one first of all, you could explain to them what cable news would be, right? Yeah. But, you know, that the far and away the number one news network would be a right of center network where people like Charles Krauthammer and, you know, Britt Hume and whatever yeah. rule you know, ruled the roost and ruled the airwaves, people would say, that's fantastic. Yeah. Right? You know? And yeah. You know, and I think it's Ramesh who first pointed out to me. In the last forty years, the America has become. This gets to your point about culture war successes. Become more pro-life, more pro-gun, and more pro-gay. Mm-hmm. From a cultural conservative, two out of three is still pretty good. You right. know? And, and, I, and I, and I'm, off, I'm not saying that it's bad that we're more pro-gay, but mm-hmm. you know, it is what it is. But the problem is, is the echo chamber problem. Is yeah. that you just don't. That it it's it's one thing to have more conservative voices out there and that's good, but it used to be that there was still a common understanding of what the news was, and now it's just two completely oh, yeah. different worldviews about yeah. what is new. I mean, I whenever there's breaking news about anything, I I now flip back and forth just to see how shows open. I do the same, and it's they're describing you know Venus and Mars, you know. Yeah.
1: Oh yeah. Exactly. Exactly. And you know, one of the things is. So we've had this. There's been a lot of success, and at the same time, we feel like we're just in danger of complete catastrophe. Right. And the we're staring into the abyss, even as by some measures we've never been more successful. I mean, here this is this is a this is such received conventional wisdom that if you try push back on it, people look at you as if you've got horns growing out of your head. And this received conventional wisdom is Republicans didn't know how to win. Right. That conservative has not conservatism has not conserved anything before Donald Trump. And here comes Donald Trump to break this historic, horrible, awful losing streak and reintroduce us to winning. All of those things are being uttered in 2016 when the Democratic Party was at about a 100-year low right. across the country. GOP was never hadn't been stronger since the 20s. Right. Yeah. I mean, so you're looking at a GOP that is so politically ascendant that across the country a lot of Democrats are now convinced and you talk to progressives they're saying we lose right we're losing we're losing here we're losing there panic about this group and that group and the overwhelming power of cokes and alec and spn and you know you hear all of these like you know conspiracy theory ideas about the tentacles of power of the right and then over on the right it's like we don't win anything right and and uh, i i read this thing on i forget who wrote it it was on cbs and he said the the real driver of a lot of our polarization and I think it's one driver. There's many drivers. But one is both sides are convinced they're losing.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And it, it builds a panic and fear. And it's it's almost as if you say that, well, you know, if you question the idea that Republicans never accomplished anything and that they're just one group of the Washington generals to the Harlem Globetrotters right. of the left, that it's – they they just – people just think you're off your rocker. right? You know, of course all we did was lose. Right. Um, I actually think, and I, I'd be kind of stunned
0: if you actually disagree with me too strongly about this. You've read the Tim Carney book, or yes, yeah, yeah. you know, it's 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 you know, it's that the argument of that book is my spirit animal. I mean, I, yeah. yeah, and um, because <laughs> I've been banging my spoon on my high chair about federalism and yes, you know, locals for a really long time. Part of the part of the reason why things seem so dire on both sides, I would argue, is that when um, you don't look to your local community for politics mm-hmm. and you look to the national level, everything becomes an abstraction. The, yeah. the enemy becomes an abstract other rather yeah. than actual human beings. But also when you invest in the state, as opposed to the government, right? A distinction that actually matters, but we don't have to get into details mm-hmm. on it. When you have this idea of the state as the engine of progress, that once we get a hold of it, it's like getting a hold of the Iron Throne, yeah. right? We will have, mm-hmm. we will impose our will from coast to coast. Mm-hmm. If you have that vision of what the state is, and then the other side gets it, you freak out in terror. Yes. You know, it's like if you're a Protestant, you're like, oh my God, Catholics on the throne, you know, that kind <laughs> of thing. And vice versa. And if you if you clear cut all of the, the trees of civil society, the only thing, all eyes will instinctively just go yes. to Washington, and you will invest in Washington this, this power. And- That's Trump's argument. That's the populist nationalist argument is that I alone can fix it and he will fix everything. And that was Barack Obama's argument. And the only, the only way out is it's, it's the hard way. It's like the Al Pacino speech in Scent of a Woman. You know, I know, I know the right path and I never took it because it's too damn hard, right? is to get the power out of Washington. And how you do that,
1: I have I have no great tactical insight about. I don't think anybody has a great tactical insight. But you know, you're you're exactly right and this brings us to what are now being called as the the Tucker wars or the yeah, personal yeah. responsibility wars, the populist wars. You know, I feel like I look at our and I remember when Obama's campaign came out with that life of Julia. Right. And every single person on the right was ha hilarious. You know, where's the guy in this? There's no guy. Right. There's just Julia, child, and state. Right, And that was it. And No parents, no church, no family, nothing. Exactly. Right. It was the state and Julia and her kid. And the state was going to facilitate the best life for Julia and her kid. And you look at that and you just go, oh, please. And now I feel like life of Julia, you know, uh, anonymous single parent from somewhere is – there's on the right. There's the life of like Max. Yeah, you know this recently unemployed steelworker from Pittsburgh. Yeah, and so now who's going to save Max? Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. And you know that. So then the the nation turns its longing eyes to the state, and when that's the position, when the position is that fundamentally the most important entity in Julia's life isn't Julia or what I would prefer to say God. Right. <laughs> That fundamentally, the most important entity in your life and in the control of your destiny is this federal government. That's a scary place to be, especially considering that we're now in, in to talk about political discontent and alienation. Where I mean, we're now with the the primacy, and this is something a song a lot of us at NR have been singing for a while: the primacy of the executive over every other branch. Mm-hmm. The the relegation of Congress to you know to use your phrase the parliament of pundits means that you might look at the federal government as this primary instrument in your life and yet never be able to cast a meaningful vote right. to influence its policies in your life. Yeah, if you live in a safe red or safe blue state, as most of us do. Yeah, no, and also I, mean,
0: I agree. It would be a much bigger improvement if people looked a lot more to God. Mm-hmm. But it also would be just a much bigger improvement if people look more to their mayors. You know? Yeah, oh, yeah. <laughs> you know? I mean, because um, at least there's a chance that they can interact with their mayor. Yeah. Right? Um, or their city councilman or whatever. But it's <sighs> so. I'd like
1: a hierarchy that goes alter, mirror, mayor.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's it's it's, you know, I'm I'm a big believer in this idea of as. As, as Will Herberg put it, um, homo religioso, mm-hmm. that we are by nature religious creatures. Mm-hmm. And when you take out traditional religion and traditional sources of the transcendent, you don't stop seeking the transcendent. Right. Right? And you also, when you take out traditional sources of community, you don't lose what Robert Nisbet called the quest for community. You just mm-hmm. look elsewhere for it. And so... Whenever I talk about in speeches, the Life of Julia thing, I always point out that the first words of the Democratic Convention in 2012 were, the government is the one thing we all belong to, <laughs> right? And as, as sort of Tea Party-ish guys, I always say that makes me want to flip the safety on my rifle, but, but neither of us are the target of the Democratic Convention in 2012. No. And for mil- And what conservatives don't understand is for millions of people, what they hear is, Government is the one thing we can all belong to. Yes. People are desperate for a sense of community, yes. and the problem is, is, that you can't get it from the federal government. Mm-hmm. and And so, what you have now, I would argue, is that we have these two, you know, as Jonathan Haidt would put it, you know, these these two coalitions of the sacred. Mm-hmm. And when you have when you think one thing is sacred, then you have to think the other thing is profane. Uh, is profane. Mm-hmm. And these are categories that we should not be having in politics because they lead to no good. Yes. You know? Um, yeah. And I don't know how to get out of it because, I mean, the, the Christian right is not very good at proselytizing. <laughs> um, and the
1: Christian left is not very good at religion. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, what we're seeing, I think, is... And, and some of the sm- smarter folks, some really smart folks on right and left have been writing about this for a while. I mean, Ross's that has written about this. Peter Beinart has talked about you know, that the post-Christian right is not quite as awesome as we thought it would be. Right. And so is Daltet. And he's also had the integrity to say, well, the post-Christian left yeah. has some issues. And you know, look, I know and I and I know and I know my own sort of evangelical Christian conservative world well enough to know that the examples of us failing to live up to the high callings of Scripture are legion. But it turns out that when you take out of the equation a religion that at least has the aspiration to say, love your enemies, right. to turn the other cheek, when you remove bless those who persecute you, when you remove that ethic entirely, the world doesn't get better. right? And so now we're in this, in this zero forgiveness zone. We're in this zone that says, you're not just, and this is something we've battled for a long time anyway. You're not just wrong, you're evil. And it really is, you know, it, I lo- I look back fondly to the idea to the days when the main competitor to, say, orthodox, small-o orthodox Judeo-Christian theology was this moral- moralistic therapeutic deism, mm-hmm. this sort of, you know, hey, God loves everybody. Right. We're all cool. God likes nice people. Let's all be nice, you know. And there was a lot of theological reasons to be alarmed by that because I think it's a wrong <laughs> worldview. Right. but. Man, do I prefer moralistic therapeutic deism to vengeful intersectionality. Yeah, yeah, no, no, I think that's right. So it's
0: funny. One of the reasons why I bring all this up is that I've one of my big obsessions is how we view politics as a form of entertainment, and weird things happen to your brain when you see things as forms of entertainment. Traditional morality and dogma go out the window when we see a movie. You know, in Game of Thrones, if you like a character. Mm-hmm. You forgive them for murdering all sorts of people, right? You know, you you forgive torture. You know, you forgive all these things because it's your tribal mind that is entertained. Mm -hmm. It's not your frontal lobe with your, you know, legalisms and the macrocosm of the rule of law. It's, yeah, kick them again, right? And, but we also look at things allegorically. Mm -hmm. And, And, you know, an allegory is like Pilgrim's Progress. You have, like, literally Mr. Moral struggle and Mr. Yeah. – you know, these characters that are just basically one emotion or one sentiment or one concept and they they wear it on their sleeves. And so when you follow politics as sort of allegorical entertainment, once you've decided that someone fits a certain role, like evil white man, yeah. it doesn't matter whether the evidence – and that was the Kavanaugh thing, right? He, yeah. He was a stand, – stand, how do you say it? Synecdoche? What's that word? Synecdoche? I don't know. Synecdoche. Synecdoche, right. Kavanaugh was, you know, this just this personification of entitled white man, white Christian man. Yeah, and that's all you need to know. And so, like, the what's the incredibly insipid woman from Hawaii, Sparono? Yeah, uh, Maziarano. Yeah, yeah. She says, "I can. I think he's the rapist because I can tell from the way he votes on the bench." Yeah. You no,
1: know? I mean that. Lightning bolts should have come out of the sky yeah. and
0: vaporized her, which is the things like that.
1: Yeah. Well, and even worse than that was this 15-year-old kid on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial right. in a super awkward situation. Yeah. Like I can't even imagine if I'm 15 and somebody – in the midst of all that, somebody starts banging a drum and chanting in my face. I would look with this frozen – and one thing, I would do exactly what he did. I'd cycle through facial expression. Yeah, yeah, yeah which is what he did and you know you've got the cameras clicking the whole way oh smirk well you know missing three seconds ago confusion missing right. you know and and then that's the symbol right but you know look this is this is the negative polarization this is the flight 93 this is and if you're gonna be angry all the time you gotta have somebody to be legitimately angry at and if they're not gonna exist you're gonna you're going to cook them up. <laughs> right. No, that's right. And that's the problem with social media to a certain extent is like
0: if the Covington story hadn't, um, or these various like kid having a, his MAGA hat knocked off yeah, his yeah, head, yeah, right? Yeah. These kind of like things. If there wasn't video on social media about it, it simply would not be news. Right. I remember I, I used this example, I think, on Glop a while back. I was once on. Howie Kurtz's old CNN media show and we were about to talk about some news of the day and they they said, oh, we got to stop for breaking news. We have to cut to some breaking news because they had footage of a purse snatching in a supermarket parking lot. Yeah. Right? A crime that would not probably make the local police yeah. blotter. But because there was video and it was at the high watermark of this sort of, that's what CNN was going to do, was like breaking video kind of stuff, it became this national event, right? <laughs> the, if you... Described the Covington thing mm-hmm. as just an anecdote over beers or something. Say you yeah. watched it. Oh, well, that's an interesting story. Yeah, but you would not it would not occur to you to call someone at the Washington Post and tell them about it, right? Yeah. But because it's a viral thing and everyone gets to bring their baggage and their confirmation biases and their interpretations to it, we turn weird, normal, daily life stuff
1: into these vast allegorical battles of good and evil. And that's going to lead to something bad. Well, you know, and think about this. I mean, so we're really polarized now. And that's not just someone saying we're polarized. And then you get the well, actually crowd that says, well, actually, you know, we've always been. No, I mean, there's real poll data that shows that we like each other less now. yeah, Substantially less. And so that's a real problem. And but, you know, look, we got a lot of th- things to be thankful for. I mean, there was in the late 60s, early 70s, I mean, between five and 10 domestic bombings, like a day, day. yeah, yeah, a no. day. And, and we spend two weeks on a awkward encounter on the Lincoln Memorial steps where nobody has come comes close to any sort of physical violence. Right. I mean, could you imagine filtering that level of violence through the Twitter lens? Yeah. Holy smoke. So. You know, I'm just sitting here, hoping and praying that. And we have had things that have been really darn scary. the The congressional shooting uh, was. I mean, we we were one guy's bad aim and two cops' personal heroism away from a nation changing event. Yeah, and and people. Same thing with Hassan, this guy who wanted the Coast Guard guy who the Coast wanted to murder a whole bunch of Democrats, or the the super Trump super fan bomber. He yeah. was just a bad bomb maker. I yeah. mean, everyone I've talked to said, "No, the guy." Really wanted to blow people up. He yeah. was really trying to. So we, we've been very lucky. Yeah, and and I just pray that that luck holds. But you know, being lucky isn't a strategy. Right. Yeah. And you have people like Joe DeGene- DeGeneva
0: just the other day talking about how you need to load up on guns because of the Mueller probe. You know, right. Which is you know come on, dude. Nice. <laughs> um, oh, I know. I know. Um, all right. So we've. I think we've we've fulfilled our obligations for grave hand-wringing punditry. Okay. Um, And we should probably switch gears for the time we have left. Grave hand-wringing over the final season of Game of Thrones? Why don't we start there? (laughs) Uh, Going into it on a a 0 to 10 dread, it's going to be terrible, and they're going to ruin the storylines. And 10, it's going to be fantastic, and they're going to tie a perfect bow on it. What's your
1: level of optimism? Okay, so full disclosure to Uh the audience, you and I, are a little bit different on some of our takes on some really significant pop culture moments. Yeah, it's
0: very weird. We, you're an evangelical Christian. I'm a pseudo intellectual, demi Jew, and uh, we watch all the same stuff. But on grave moral and political <laughs> issues, we see things almost perfectly eye to eye. Yes, but that we're also
1: both pop culture geeks, and we have profound <laughs> disagreements. Like I love the Battlestar Galactica finale. Okay, but, yeah. Well, that's because you're wrong. Yeah, <laughs> but I'm going to say so. I reluctantly came over to your more negative point of view of the last season. Uh It just – the final plan, the plan by Jon Snow just sort of pushed me over the edge. But I'm returning to optimism. I now look at the subpar last season as necessary but clumsily executed moving of the pieces on the chessboard.
0: I'll be honest. I'm coming close. I rewatched it not long ago. And when you – are really mad at something and then you rewatch it, the anger kind of ble- has bled
1: out. and yes. And then there were, there were certainly
0: big pieces of it that I really liked.
1: Yeah. So I'm going to say I'm a nine. Really? I'm a nine because for, for a couple of reasons. One, they've always executed on the big confrontations. Uh-huh. And we're going to have one, maybe two. We're going to have, you know, the, the battle of the army of the dead. Probably near Winterfell. Right. And then we're going to have the whatever the final resolution is uh, for the time being anyway of the quest for the Iron Throne. So they've always done those big set pieces mm-hmm. beautifully. So that's going to be a big dominant part of this season. And so I and, – and the word I'm hearing is the filming for just one of these battles was the most elaborate filming ever for you – know, in modern history for a battle scene on screen. Huh. And so I'm eagerly awaiting whatever that turns out to be. But, you know, at the end of the day, the chess pieces are in the right place. We have some of the best. I mean, there are some pretty incredible actors who fully inhabit these roles. And, you know, frankly, some writers and directors who over the course of multiple seasons have given us some of the greatest moments in recent television. I'm just going to have confidence. Okay. I'm going to have confidence.
0: So I think this illuminates one of the distinctions between us. I I like the Battle of the Bastards. I like big battle scenes. Mm-hmm. I, I love the um I love Danny dragon firing, the Lannister army yes, and all that yes, kind of stuff. Yes. So that was great. Although why when she's worried about feeding her armies, she blows up their entire supply chain. <laughs> why, you know, like maybe kill the humans but like take the wheat. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and uh like Drogon is a blunt instrument. <laughs> I understand that, but she could have used the blunt instrument on the humans <laughs> and not on just riding up the entire caravan of supplies. But anyway, that's a different issue. But you like spectacle more yes. in pop culture than I do. I oh, And love it. I like the spectacle when it's a fitting climax, you know, the destroying the Death Star, at least the first time. No more Death Stars. Um, <laughs> but, like, you really loved the big battle scene in Aquaman. Yes. And I rolled my eyes at a lot of Aquaman, oh, including that. So glorious. What I, so, like, I think we talked about this the last time you were on this podcast. Uh, Max Brooks, the author of World War Z. Mm-hmm. You know when I was and we've talked about the, how I for years I wanted to write this, this zombie novel yeah, which yeah, we yeah. don't we don't need to give away the plot line because someone will take it but one of the things that Max Brooks said in one of the interviews is the reason why he wrote the book the way he did is that he always loved the first ten minutes of zombie movies mm. where it's civilization just starting to unravel and grapple with this unthinkable sort of mm-hmm. new paradigm shifting thing and you get the news reports and then all of a sudden the news goes dead and he disliked the then the next 80%, which is just zombies eating people okay. and, and shooting people in the head and shooting yeah, zombies yeah. in the head. And I'm kind of there too. Yeah. I love that backstory stuff, right? Mm-hmm. And so my favorite parts of Game of Thrones are probably the conversations. Yeah. And I would love if they just did like a bottle episode where sort of uh, my dinner with Andre style, it's just <laughs> a bunch of them sitting around a table telling stories and talking through things and arguing about The show in character. I think that would be fantastic. I mean, you'd have to cut away and show some sex scene or you know whatever. (laughs) But I love that stuff. And one of the problems with this last season is because they were accelerating and having to move all the pieces in place, and they had to rush some things. And time compression was yeah. And the, the the rushed. I mean, they've been building up Littlefinger. As having the, you know, he was like, he was, Littlefinger was basically the Cylons mm-hmm. of this thing. He's the guy with the plan. He's been moving all these pieces successfully. And then with something happens off camera and all of a sudden, no more Littlefinger. Um, spoiler alert. Sorry. Yeah. Um, and um, <laughs> that stuff bothered me. But the, the conversation, like the conversation between um, uh, Tywin, Ty- Tyrion mm-hmm. and um, Cersei. Mm-hmm. In the, in the penultimate episode or yes. in the uh, last I guess it was in the last episode. Um that was great stuff. And and so I worry that we're not going to get much of that in the final. And, and so at the same time I you know, I want to see the zombies get killed and, and all the rest and I but I would love a huge knockdown drag out argument about why Jon Snow outranks Danny in entitlement to the throne. Yeah. Which he does. He does. He does. <laughs> and, you know, I would love that. You know, let's break out the heraldic family trees time yep. and fight about it. You know, um,
1: John John beats Aunt Danny. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> um. So, as as a not to get back to grave moral stuff, but yeah. as a sincere Christian, how do you? I know how I compartmentalize. Yeah stuff on TV. How do you deal with it, right? Because, I mean, you actually have a different ethos
1: than I do about something. Right. And I get this question a ton. Yeah. Because... But I'm not wagging my finger at you. No, no, no. It's a (laughs) a great question. I mean, and I answer it like this. I mean, I am not somebody... Look, if if there's a a scriptural rule, that's the rule, Mm -hmm. okay? If it's in scripture, that's the rule. But there's a lot of... Christian life that is making judgment calls based on who you are uniquely as a human being. Like there are, there are people – like a, a perfect example is I enjoy, I enjoy a bourbon uh, at, in the evening. It's great to have a little sip and whiskey mm-hmm. as you're watching a good show or you're scrolling through your Twitter feed and despairing about the state of mankind.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, there are people who should not come within a mile – of because of family histories sure. or their own they shouldn't come within a mile of uh, a glass of maker's mark mm-hmm. you know and so and there are people who are look i mean as big a problem as porn is in this country and uh, porn is in families there's people i would say look don't watch that show right you know don't watch that show um but you know f- for me when i look at it i think There are elements of this that are really deeply, profoundly good storytelling, Mm -hmm. and there are elements of this that actually pretty interestingly connect with human nature and communicate some interesting truths, as well as just being, look, let's just face it, a fun fun story to follow. You know, it's okay to have fun. And so, you know, that's one thing that I've always said, number one, it's okay to have fun. Number two... Uh, there are elements of this story that are very, very interesting. I have I thought the – and um, I'd love to like get Ross Douthat in a room and talk out the High Sparrow for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, there were elements of that that were really interesting in the way that religion – when secular power confronts religious power, secular power is often utterly stumped by it. Mm-hmm. Because the High Sparrow, you know, evidenced this like real lack of concern for his own life. Right. Well, so how do you deal with somebody like that when the power to take life is generally the thing that gives you your right. authority in the society? And here you have a guy's like fine, yeah. And so you know, those, those that, I thought that was really well done and and really interesting. And of course, Cersei, spoiler alert, just decides to you know wipe them all out at once. Right. So, right. But um. But yeah, I think you know. So I, I look I, as I I say when I i'll talk- I'll be asked about this when I speak at church groups, yeah, and i'll say as as a christian i'm I'm not going to go as a Christian and I'm kind of joking as a Christian, I can't recommend it, but it's the best show on television <laughs> <laughs> uh, so but what I'm saying is you know this isn't for everybody, yeah, and I fully am aware of that, and that's fine that's fine yeah, yeah. See, it's funny like
0: one of the first big pieces I did for n r almost twenty years ago was um distinguishing between movies with bad sexual morality and movies with bad violence and mm-hmm. violence as bad as we should not endorse violence, but violence is sort of cathartic violence in a moral thing is uh, it's putting a, it's underlying certain moral codes and other, um, but the sexual stuff cuts a different way and we don't need to get into the weeds and all of it. But the thing is, um, one of the things that I find challenging when I try to put on that hat of sort of judging things by the moral messages that they send, there is a real nihilistic side to Game of Thrones, right? In that sense, it is the anti tolkien in that it's not, there is, the most moral people tend to be suckers in Mm -hmm. Game of Thrones. And um, I find that to be really interesting if it's not taken too far, you know. Um, I wish they could do a better job of explaining why in that moral universe some people do care about their honor, mm-hmm. you know, it'd be kind of cool to sort of yeah. build up on that. The other thing, just completely changing the subject, as someone who spent a big chunk of the last couple of years trying to figure out where capitalism came from, or mm-hmm. at least under, trying to understand the different arguments for it, the fact that you have these different institutions, you actually, you actually have functioning finance in terms of the Bank of Bravos, and you have all of these other preconditions that sort of describe. 15th, 16th, early 17th century England, which is where capitalism basically comes from, or even Holland, if you talk about the free cities, and yet they don't get more technology, they don't get, you know, and Mm -hmm. it's almost as if the only thing that would explain it, other than the fact that it's all make-believe and shut up people who don't like this conversation, is that there's this permanent EMP field. (laughs) that makes it impossible to invent electricity right. you know? yeah, exactly. <laughs> or something like that yeah, right? Yeah. because they should like they're like the, the people they they just invented a better crossbow like two years ago in right. Game of Thrones that, <laughs> that should not be the case when you yes. have weapons makers who are smart who are thinking about it all the time and competing against other weapons makers the, the stasis of the Game of Thrones universe where they haven't had technological improvements in a thousand years oh
1: is, thousands yeah it's weird right and yeah. I
0: wish we could get a little more yeah. explanation of this. Some of that
1: yeah, that is interesting. I mean, you know, like a lot of fantasy settings, what you see is that the actually the golden age was thousands of years ago. Right. So they built the wall. You right. know, they had the ability to build that wall. It's absurd. And now, well, you know, that's lost to history. But
0: it was built with an emergency declaration.
1: <laughs> of and it, course. And that's what I mean, of done. course, over um, the objections of the you know the Never Starks of the <laughs> the. the, the uh, you know, going back to you, raise a really good point about the nihilism of the show. But I, I think I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna push back just a little bit on it. Mm-hmm. In that, I do think that they there's an interesting exploration between sort of the three lines of morality you, you see in the show. As one is the Stark line, and you would call that foolish honor. Mm-hmm. So. Ned Stark stumbles into his own execution. Almost pride in the biblical sense, right? Right, right. You know, the iconic picture of Jon Snow, which is one of – by the way, just talking about how much I love spectacle. One of the iconic shots in all of fantasy cinema is him holding his Valerian steel sword in the front of the entire charging Bolton army. And nothing says Stark like that. You know, like that's Stark in one picture. Then you have Cersei who is – by any means necessary, and you had this really, this really interesting exchange. I believe it was with Jamie and Olena, where and he says, "When it's all said and done, and we're living in the world that we have created, is anyone going to care how she made it?" Right. Which is one, and then the which is Stalin's logic, right, and also Hitler's, right, right. Uh, the
0: thousand-year Reich will be
1: great, and we'll just forget about all the people, exactly. Yeah. And then you have this Daenerys Targaryen line, which is. A bright, shining purpose that is on one one part just hey that's my throne, but then on the other part she's genuinely outraged by injustice, mm-hmm. like so she marches through the slaver's bay and she wants and she wants to be the person who frees the slaves, she wants to break this wheel of oppression right. and so she always has this angel and devil that's working out, which reminds me a little bit of to flip to another one of our favorite shows last kingdom yes and the king alfred character which is one of the best fully realized yeah. sort of old christian king characters probably the only great fully realized old christian king characters i think that's right i mean you you get
0: the the real sense that it's alfred right or alfred or alfred, alfred yeah, yeah. yeah
1: alfred the great he's based on
0: yeah um but there's obviously he's a sincere christian mhm it's also obvious that he wants to kill his enemies. Yes. And he thinks he needs to kill his enemies because he's a sincere Christian. Yeah. And and you get both sides – get, you get the yin and the yang from that in a way. I, I think you're right. I can't think of another character. Usually it's – if the sincere Christian is killing people, it's because Christians are bad. Right. right? And you don't get that from him.
1: You get right.
0: that – these are complicated times. He's know? living
1: in a really perilous world and he's at the helm of the last kingdom. Right. And – and he's got Danes all around, and he he wants to be an honorable man. He also wants to continue to – Wessex to be free. And it's he has this so, glorious idea of England. And he has this glorious idea of a Christian England. And man, it's well done showing yeah. how a person of – you know what you look at as basically good faith, mm-hmm. uh, but a real sense of the hardness of the world navigates that. Yeah. And have have you finished all the – all three of the... Of Last the, Kingdom? Yeah yeah yeah, 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 yeah. Well, you know, without... I mean, I would urge you guys to watch it, but I would say the final scene of the season three with Alfred and, and Uhtred together yeah. was... We talk about those small moments. Yeah. Wow.
0: Yeah, no, I agree. Yeah. I agree. Um, we're going really long, and I actually have to write a syndicated column today. Uh-oh. But uh, I guess we should talk a little bit about my new venture thing and about National Review. Uh, if you have questions about it, I'm happy to answer them. But we'll just uh, just I want to check that box really quick because we don't I have the time to do it in the various and sundry. Some of you listeners may know by now that I am officially going to be stepping down, not for a little while, as senior editor at National Review. I'm basically going to be leaving the magazine. I'm going to stay a fellow at the National Review Institute, at least for the foreseeable future, which I'm very happy to do. And uh, I I do want to push back on one thing, and maybe David can um, attest to this. One of our favorite, most methodical, fact-driven reporters, uh, (laughs) Emerald Robinson, I think. Oh. Oh, right. She's already been tweeting that. That I was fired, that the staff <laughs> revolted against me, that there were people going to be leaving because I was such a drag on subscribers and they had to get me off the masthead, right? And um, this is uh, this is truly fake news. Oh, yeah. that's fakest. And she says that she's been reporting this. This, is, this confirms her reporting for months or something like that. Someone sent me a screen capture of what she said. Anyway, uh, I, I don't want to spend a lot of time on Emerald Robinson because I think she's just literally a fraud, but there are going to be a lot of people who are going to try and say this was about Trump one way or the other i 'm leaving on principle because the magazine doesn 't um, is too pro Trump and all that kind of stuff. Well, let the record show that, that that David is still at National Review and his views and my views about Trump are almost perfectly aligned at least on the big issues and i 'm not leaving National Review on some grand principle or anything like that. I love national review i 've spent twenty one years at National Review. I want nothing but the best for it. That's one of the reasons why I want to stay at NRI. But I had this opportunity to do something that's really that's really cool. I mean, David's really old; he's like fifty, <laughs> and I won't be—I won't be fifty for like five more weeks. So, <laughs> but I wanted to do. There was this. Uh, uh, Steve Hayes is a really great friend of mine. We had this really f- interesting, exciting idea to do something new and s- and deal with some of the things we were talking about earlier yeah. about how uh, conservative. Readers and news consumers are being poorly served by the menu of options that they have right now. And we think we can do something new and exciting in that space. And this is sort of my last chance to be sort of entrepreneurial with my life. You've been very entrepreneurial with your life. You've done a lot of different things. <laughs> mm-hmm. Kevin Williamson has done a lot of different things. You know, I was a. RA at AEI in the beginning of the 90s. Then I was a television producer for a little while. And then I went to National Review. And I've been there since 98. And I just really wanted to make a change. But National Review is my family. I love the place. I care about it passionately. And so anybody out there who tells you that this has to do with Trump or or anti-Trump or any of that kind of stuff, they're either making it up or they're lying. Um, And I just wanted to get that
1: out there. Well, it's the fakest of news. I mean, look... I mean I know what the temperature is inside Nash Review, a little 5% more than Emerald Robinson maybe, yeah, maybe. you know yeah, is that fair then, yeah. maybe <laughs> And I can tell you we're happy for you I'm happy for you I'm sad for us yeah. I mean it's this isn't this is a this isn't hard to figure out I mean we I think you're exactly right there is goodness knows there is market room for excellent journalism and independent insights yeah. I mean good good grief there's there's tremendous room, there's crying need, and everybody's happy for you, weeping and gnashing of teeth for us <laughs> and and the idea that now National Review sums are going to be some sort of complete maga rag is absolutely news to me. News to Kevin. Right. News. To, I mean, the name news to Charlie. News, to, news to Charlie. News to news to even people who are much more sympathetic to, to Trump than either of us are. Right. right. I
0: mean, exactly. Just, it's nonsense.
1: Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. So, yeah. I mean, I'm I'm just excited to see what you do. As I tweeted, I want to be your first subscriber. And look, bottom line is, I will always have that. I am your first podcast guest on the day. You hoisted the Jolly Roger. It's your Super Bowl ring. They can never take it away from you. <laughs> you can never, never be taken from me. But yeah, I'm glad we brought up the the fake news because it is very, very fake. And uh, where I mean, we're happy for you. And I would say we'll miss you institutionally. We're not gonna. We're gonna still see each other personally. Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> no, I'm staying friends with everybody. Yeah. you
1: know. And I'm. De- and I want to be very clear about this. I
0: when I talked to Rich on Monday, I was. Very clear. I will, I will not speak a contrary word about National Review during any of this. We've had people who've left National Review who have not followed that path (laughs) and we don't need to get into all of that. But, and oh, I should just say, if you're, if you're, since you want to be the first subscriber, I don't want to do a lot of promotion of, of this thing on this platform or on National Review online or anything like that because I just think that's sort of a bad look. But for those who are interested and want to get updates, uh, uh, Jack set up an email address uh, this morning because uh, we don't have a name for this new venture yet. Okay. Uh, we internally we just call it Nuco. And if you want to get updates, you want to be early. You know, I- invitations to subscribe and all the rest. The email address what I set up is, or that Jack set up is Hayes Goldberg twenty nineteen at Gmail. And uh, one thing I can promise you now: we will never sell anybody's email. We've that one of the things we want to do with this thing is be Anti clickbaity, anti mass marketing. If we have your email, no one no one will ever get it from us. Sort of like how Hillsdale within premise never will sell that mailing list. Right, we will never uh, give away email for anything, and we'll never you know tell you that you have to uh, buy various penis enlargement pills or whatever. <laughs> That's not what we want to do. We want to go high high road, not low road. Um, but if you want to know more about what's going to happen or if you want to get er, sign up early, uh, hayesgoldberg2019 at gmail.com.
1: I'm just a little upset you didn't delay a little longer. So it could be hayesgoldberg2020 Hayes at gmail.com and cause some minor meltdown. Yeah,
0: no, that's a good point.
1: <laughs> um, but you know, it is what it is.
0: And uh, we'll have more to talk about all that another time. I never actually introduced you or told listeners who you are at the beginning of this thing because I just think you go without need of introduction. Oh, yeah, sure. Uh, but David is uh, the, a fellow senior editor at National Review. For a long time, you were a constitutional lawyer. Mm-hmm. You served in Iraq mm-hmm. uh, because one of the things about modern warfare in this age is that America sends lawyers into battle too. <laughs> and
1: um, and you're one of my favorite people in the world. So thank you for coming on. Well, thank you for having me. And and uh, it's an honor. It really is. I've I've enjoyed this very much. And and i i'm only half joking that i'm going to forever be proud of, <laughs> of my identity as the first podcast guest so um and uh and that's it, that's it for this
0: time um i will see you next time <laughs>